Okay, I've been playing with titles again. This is lesson 12. And uh, my concern with titles is that when I get too cute internationally, it doesn't make any sense at all. But why Judaism was all washed up uh, ought to convey something to you uh, as we we read this uh, text from Mark chapter 6 into uh, chapter 7. I'm not against washing hands. I may not do it as often as I should, but I'm not against it. And so all of you mothers, uh, rest easy. Children should wash their hands before they eat. There is much to be said about the value of washing hands when we are talking in terms of medicine and sickness. Uh, When uh, some of us went down to Louisiana uh, to help with the Katrina uh, cleanup, uh, our task at this particular place was to serve uh, food, I might say very tasty food, uh, to the medical staff who were dealing with bodies uh, and, and sickness and pollution. And I've never washed my hands so many times in one day as I did in that facility, and wisely so, I might say under some pressure too, but wisely so. When you go to a restaurant and you go into the restroom, you notice the sign that's almost always on the on the door as you're leaving. Employees must wash their hands, to which I always assent with a hearty amen. And I hope those guys not only read but obey it. And there have been times when I've traveled overseas where I've thought a lot about washing of hands. I remember one particular place where the waiter was serving uh, tables and he had four glasses in one hand and a finger in each glass. And I'm really thinking about several things that I won't talk about this morning about those hands, but the reality is washing hands is important. Or when you go to the marketplace and you're buying something. I love to buy fruits and things that I've never seen before, but I'm conscious of the fact that the hands that prepare that for me may well not be washed hands. That's not the kind of hand-washing we're talking about here. We're talking about a very technical, precise uh, washing of hands that is ceremonial. I wish my friend Marvin Ball were here because I remember him describing going to a wine-tasting event one time. And, and, and there, there's this ritual, believe me, I haven't been there, haven't done it, but, but there's this ritual where you swirl around the glass and you sniff it and you go through. And, and so Marvin goes there and he sort of reenacts this ritual, but with a little embellishment. And if you know Marvin, you know it would have been worth paying to see. And, and that's kind of the way this hand washing went. You had all this ritual of a certain way that you did your hands and it had to drip down and all this stuff. It's ceremonial for ceremonial cleanness, not medicinal, so to speak, for biological uh, cleanness. And our text, as it deals with this matter of washed or unwashed hands, is, is going to teach us a principle, uh, and, and, and specifically Mark is going to set forth a principle which is a landmark, it would be like a, a, a huge Supreme Court decision uh, with respect to uh, this practice and indeed with respect to the Old Testament law that lay behind it. So it is, it is 
I can hardly overstate the importance of this particular principle as it is played out in the New Testament. It has to do with our salvation. It has to do with our sanctification. It's all about where sin comes from. And it isn't from dirty hands. Okay, so let's talk about the sequence of events as they are unfolded for us in in the text. We'll start back a little before uh, our actual text begins, and we'll come to the feeding of the 5,000 in verses 30 through 44. Jesus, then you remember in Mark's gospel, is described as walking on the water, and as we talked about last week, the disciples uh, are somewhat rebuked by Mark as he tells us that they were hardened in their hearts and they did not see the connection between the, the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. Now, this picks up uh, the story from there. Now they are at the place where they have pur- a purpose to be, and that's at Genesaret, which you'll notice if you see a map. It's not always on uh, the maps, even in my Bible. It wasn't as good as it should have been. But it's on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. So they're at Genesaret, and uh, the, the story picks up where the crowds uh, recognize Jesus' arrival. And, and immediately, the crowds began to throng around our Lord Jesus. <clears throat> and in particular, the sick are brought many of them in pallets and so on. And wherever he went, the crowds gathered. And the interesting thing about this is, it doesn't tell us that they asked Jesus to heal them. It says they asked permission to touch the hem of his garment. And the text says, everyone who did so was healed. Now, I I may be making more of that or less of that than I should, but... It seems to me that there's a, there's some subtle difference that's taking place in this particular thing. We've seen before the popularity of the Lord Jesus and the way in which the crowds sought him out. But I remember Joe Bailey in his book, originally called uh, The View from a Hearse, where he talked about people who were dying and the way in which people gradually withdrew. And, and, and where, where somebody was sick, they get hugged and kissed and whatever. And pretty soon, as they're, as they're nearing death, you sort of come in, blow a kiss from the door, but you're automatically, even unconsciously, sort of removing yourself and keeping a distance. I see a certain psychological distance in this. It's one thing to come face to face, eyeball to eyeball with Jesus and say, will you heal me? Because you're likely to get some interaction, right? It may not be what you want to hear, like go and sin no more, but you you would probably get reaction. This is sort of a long-distance healing. And you remember the woman who reached out and touched, that was part of the reasoning behind her actions is she didn't feel worthy to have a a kind of more intimate contact with Jesus, and so she reaches out and grabs the, the hem of his garment. I see a withdrawal taking place. Now remember John 6 tells us, that when Jesus gave the, the uh, sermon related to the bread of life and said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you won't have any part of me, the crowd's left. So what I don't see in this text, maybe, maybe it's there and Mark just doesn't bother to highlight it, what I don't see is great spiritual interest. I see people who are sick who want to be healed. 
Now, the other thing that I see in this text is that it may well be the, the motivation for the Jerusalem delegation that comes. I mean, these Jerusalem boys, you know, you've got the, the Pharisees and you've got the scribes and Jerusalem is their headquarters. They're not always there uh, listening to Jesus, but for some reason they are here. And my personal opinion is they're there because Jesus is so popular. And they're looking for an occasion to find something that they can say uh, about him that is uh, not uh, particularly good or say something to him. And, and so that's kind of the way that I view the, the, the delegation of those. It says they circled around him or they gathered around Jesus. That isn't necessarily, uh, in the way that term is used generally, it isn't necessarily a hostile thing like a pack of angry dogs or wolves or whatever it is. They just encircle him. But it does seem to me that they sort of sequester Jesus. That they get Jesus off, and, and, and again, remember when Jesus heals the man who's lowered through the roof? It looks to me like these are the guys who are blocking the entrance. Uh, and that's why they can't, uh, they can't bring the, the, the man in and they have to lower him down through the roof. And you'll notice that in, in a little bit that Jesus is going to call the crowd. And, and it says, call the crowd again which seems to imply that somehow these guys have at least a semi-private interview and discussion. The other thing that I noticed is that I'm not sure that they came with an objection. In other words, the way I read the text, it says they came and they, and they uh, surrounded Jesus and they noted that some of the disciples were eating with unwashed hands. And that may have been their aha moment. And they were saying, aha, now we've got something to sink our teeth into. Now we've got something to talk to Jesus about. And that's this matter of unwashed hands. Here's where the two accounts are really Matthew and Mark. There's another similar, sort of related account in Luke. But here's where uh, Mark expands more than Matthew does. And he has this parenthetical statement, as you can, as you notice there, in verses 3 and 4, and he talks about, here are the kind of, of washings. In other words, this matter of eating with unwashed hands is just one of many instances where there is this add-on kind of piety where you do things not required by the law, not in the Scriptures, but in their traditions. And so they make note of that. By the way, in Luke chapter 11, verse 38, Jesus is eating a meal at the house of a Pharisee. And in that instance, they note Jesus doesn't wash his hands. Now, I got to tell you something. I, I know I've got this mind that goes off into all kinds of places. But I thought, I thought this. I'll bet you if these guys were there for the feeding of the 5,000, they went berserk. Now, think about it. You're out in the wilderness you don't have gushing things of water, right, for all the ceremonial washings. And what does Jesus do? Touches every piece that they eat, right? Breaks, breaks, breaks. Oh, but it gets better, folks. He hands it to the disciples. They hand it out. And by the way, we don't know anything about 
this boy who has the loaves and the fish? Come on, folks. He's not ceremonially clean, right? So anyway, can you imagine if those guys weren't... And by this is not just the practice of these ritualistic leaders. This is the practice of all faithful Jews. No wonder Jesus waited till they were so hungry. <laughs> Everybody said this. I don't know about this washing. Man, I'm starving. Let's eat. And away they go. Well, that's extra. You didn't have to pay for that. Notice then all these other kinds of rituals that they do, all which have to do with cleansing. What's very interesting, my friend, is it has to do with marketplace, right? What is it that they're washing their hands for? It's from ceremonial defilement that has come from contact with Gentiles in the marketplace. When you're in the marketplace, you better wash your hands a lot. But that's where all this comes from. And so they go through all of these rituals that have to do with drinking cups. Now, think about this when Jesus asks the Samaritan woman if he can have a drink out of her cup. Oh, boy, it's a good thing the disciples were off buying food, right? Ooh, that's unclean. So here you have this backdrop that, the, that Mark has set before us. And with that in mind, here they come and they say to Jesus, why do your disciples violate the tradition of the elders? It's interesting to me that they don't go after Jesus. As a fact, when you look at the early opposition to Jesus in Mark, they're always carping about the disciples. Why are your disciples plucking grain? You know, why is it they don't take Jesus on? I'm not sure. It sounds a little cowardly to me, but they'll get bolder as the time goes on. Jesus answers them. Boy, I love the way Matthew puts this. Why do you do this? And, and Matthew turns it right around and says, And why do you do this? And you'll notice even in our text, it, it says uh, in, in chapter 7, in verse 10, Moses said, verse 11, But you say... So Jesus puts them against Moses. That wasn't exactly what they were looking for, but there's this contrast that's going on. So Jesus says there are essentially two evils, and he brings those out from two places. One is Isaiah's text in Isaiah 29, verse 13. What's really interesting about that text in Isaiah is it is a condemnation of Ariel. That's another word for Jerusalem. It's a condemnation of Ariel for their sins, and the consequences of that, God says, are that he will surround the city. And I just find it interesting that here's Jesus surrounded by all these Jerusalem boys. And he quotes from a text that's talking about Jerusalem being surrounded, which, of course, it will be. But anyway, he says from Jeremiah 29, 13, you're hypocrites based on this text. Um, God has already spoken to that matter. And the second thing he does is to go to their own practice, the practice of korban, devoting something uh, as a gift to God. So he says they have two problems, and, and those are both seen in, in Isaiah and in the indictment of Jewish practice. One, you hold tradition above Scripture. You hold your tradition. And reality, it's very interesting. The translations often say doctrine. 
That says to me that their traditions are not labeled tradition. They are labeled doctrine, which I'm going to say a few things about uh, later on. But some of the worst heresies, when they're called doctrine, are somehow not challenged as they should be because those doctrines conceivably could be somehow not only inconsistent with Scripture but opposed to it. So they hold their script, their traditions above Scripture. And now they come to the place where they actually take their tradition and it becomes a mandate to violate Scripture. That's how bad it's gotten in this particular instance. And they think that corruption is external uh, rather than internal. Now let's talk about... Uh, just this uh, external versus internal thing for a minute. They really saw corruption as some kind of contact with Gentiles. And therefore you had to keep washing and washing and washing. And, and that if you could just keep yourself separate from Gentiles, you could be separate from sin. What a great validation for racism. Would you not say? If one race can say all sin is rooted in this race, man then you're in your home free. Now you can discriminate to your heart. Well, let's not go down that trail. So anyway, they, they look at corruption as being external, and therefore it's something that you take in by this food that's been contaminated with Gentile hands, as opposed to that which is a matter of the heart. So what he's saying is food is taken in, but when it goes out of you, it's not... Food isn't contaminated as a rule. When we go to Kroger's, we buy food. It isn't contaminated going in. It is contaminated going out, isn't it? So it's, it's, they've taken inside out and turned it to outside in. What's on the outside corrupts the inside. Jesus says it's what's inside that corrupts outwardly. And they have the lips of those who praise God outwardly, but their hearts are filled with sin, and that's what corrupts. All right, let's look at uh, Jesus summoning the crowd, as we see in verses 14 through 16. By the way, did you notice? I had I asked Paul to make sure he read verse 16, and I saw it in his translation. It was so small, man, it'd take goo-goo eyes to read that text. But it says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And, you know, you get the classical argument, well, the oldest manuscripts don't have it. And then the others would say, well, the best manuscripts do. And away they go in their arguments. I personally am inclined to leave it there. And the reason is this. The disciples are going to say, explain for us this parable. Every time Jesus spoke in his parables in Mark 4, he says, let him who has ears hear. I think that was the signal to them that they were hearing a parable and they wanted the interpretation. So, uh, Jesus is, is going to uh, summon the crowd in verses 14 through 16, and he's going to say to them exactly what he said to the Jewish delegation, the Jerusalem delegation, in a more private setting, apparently. And, and what I see Jesus doing here is saying, let's make it clear publicly I'm not only telling these men, this is where I stand, and this is where they're wrong. I'm announcing that to the whole crowd. It is wrong 
to conclude that uncleanness comes from outside and touching something that is external. That is not true. The real source of defilement is inside. It's from the heart. Now, having done that, Jesus now has his focus on the disciples, as you see in verses 17 through 23. Now Jesus is alone with his disciples, and the disciples ask of him the parable. Now, I put Peter in there in, in, uh, in uh, brackets, uh, parentheses, and the reason is Matthew tells us it was Peter. Big surprise that Peter would be the guy to speak out. But he says, uh, what about the parable? I think, I think that, that that question reveals the ignorance that our Lord Jesus is, is, is going to rebuke. I don't think it's a parable at all. Now, I think that if you, if, if you, if you take those, that statement, let him who has ears to hear, let him hear, and you link that with parables, I can see how that could be the conclusion. But what's parabolic about saying you're not contaminated by food that Gentiles have touched? What's parabolic about that? Real corruption comes from within. It comes from men's heart. And it works its way outward in many ways. There's no mystery to that statement. And so when, when Peter asks about the parable, then Jesus has to uh, speak to him and to all of them about their lack of understanding. Do you guys not get this? Uh, and obviously they don't. So he says to them again, defilement comes from within, not from without. Defilement is not about food. Now here's the key parenthetical statement, probably parenthetical in most of your translations. Thus declaring all foods clean. If you've got a pencil, a highlighter, whatever, you better circle that, folks. That is a landslide statement from our Lord Jesus, declaring all foods clean. Defilement is a matter of the heart. Now, get this. Jesus doesn't exactly say this, but I'm just sort of s summing it up. We don't get defiled. We are defiled. See, that, that's, I mean, the Jews keep thinking, I'm pure, I'm clean, I'm holy. And my problem is that the defilement comes from without. By the way, folks, that's exactly what's being taught today. What's being taught today in many circles is that men are born innocent and pure. It is their institutions. It is the older people who corrupt them. And so the younger you are, the purer you are. I don't see that in Scripture. You're born with it. You're born with that stuff. And... Uh, so you don't worry about getting defiled. You just come to terms with the fact that you are. Here's some observations. Jesus focuses in this text on the source of defilement, not the solution for defilement. You get me? He's talking about the nature of the problem, not the nature of the solution. Now, the nature of the problem determines the solution that must come. But his point here is to talk about how one becomes unclean. And for the Jews, they had somehow twisted and misinterpreted the Old Testament to see it as contact with sinners. 
Gentiles. And therefore, the key was to stay as far away from them as possible. And no wonder then that you see the, the reaction to Jesus when he, uh, in Luke chapter 4, uh, says, uh, you know, the, that my coming is not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. And he, and he points to Elijah and Elisha and their ministry to do that. No wonder the people got all worked up about it. So, just try this on for size. But does the Jewish obsession, and incidentally, I looked this up, just, I know, I went cruising out Wikipedia or somewhere, but it said, one of the things about obsessive compulsives is they wash their hands a lot, or they may. That's one of the symptoms of obsessive compulsive. And, and uh, isn't it interesting that the Jews are obsessed with washing their hands? Now, Lady Macbeth, you know, I won't say what she said, but, but, but the reality is she is trying to rid herself of the guilt of another man's blood. Uh, Pilate, when he basically wimps out and lets the crowd have Jesus, knowing he's innocent, he washes his hands, symbolically saying, I don't bear any guilt for this. Well, he can wash his hands till the cows come home, folks. He still got it. And I think that if the writer of the Hebrews wanted to embellish on washings, he'd say it's just like the sacrifices that were done over and over and over again. They don't solve the problem. But you wonder if the obsession with that washing isn't a betrayal of the fact that there is a lingering guilt. There is not the cleansing of the conscience that Hebrews talks about, that comes through the shedding of Jesus' blood, there is rather this guilt conscience that keeps washing hands. Oh, another thing. Notice that Jesus' view of sin is general, broad-based, not Gentile. One of the things that bothers me when I hear preachers preach against sin is that they preach to the crowd that's standing before them or sitting before them and they talk about the people outside those doors. And so they'll talk about abortion and they'll, I'm not saying it doesn't happen inside, but they'll talk about abortion and, and homosexuality and all these things that, that most people in their pews are saying to themselves, wow, I feel really pure after all that. And they're so unclean. The way Jesus talks about sin is so general, it covers everybody. By the way, I noticed that in Romans, when Paul is talking about the way in which sin manifests itself in the tail end of Romans chapter 1, he's been talking about, uh, in the close context, about homosexuality and how that is a manifestation of the rejection of God. But then when he describes all of the sins, he describes the Jewish sins as well as the Gentile sins. I see that here in this text, too. Here's the interesting thing. Mark makes no comment about the reaction of the Jerusalem crew. There's not one word said in Mark about the reaction of the Jerusalem uh, crew. Isn't that interesting? What would you think... How would you conclude if you were a Jerusalem Jew and you had heard Jesus say what he said privately and broadcast it publicly? What would you, what would you think and do? 
Boy, I think you'd be at Luke 4 all over again, and they'd be after blood. They'd be out there like they were in in chapter 3 and verse 6 of Mark, conspiring as to how to kill Jesus. Now, Matthew actually does. And here's the thing that I shouldn't say it tickles me, because it's not really funny. But it's just so classically typical of, of, of Christians and of the disciples at this moment of their ignorance. It's the disciples who say to Jesus, after all that he said, they get Jesus aside and they say this, do you know that what you said offended those guys? No, that's what, read it. I mean, it's right there. Do you know that you offended? Boy, read Jesus' response to that, by the way. <laughs> so what? You could sort of paraphrase it. Uh, and he basically says, all of those who were not uh, sown by the Father, brought about by the Father, they're all going together, in a sense, to their destiny. But here's what I find interesting. The disciples who are so dull to what really is a very clear categorical statement are so sensitive to public opinion. Isn't that what it's about? Jesus, this is not politically correct. Did you, did, do you know how they react to this? So it, it just seems to me their antennas are up for the wrong stuff. And uh, lest we uh, point our fingers, our bony little fingers at uh, them, isn't that often true of us? We're often more sensitive about what other people will think of what we believe and say than uh, whether it's true or not. So I had to, after last week, have a section called Connecting the Dots, right? And uh, my first statement is, there are no dots to connect between what the Jews had as tradition and what the Old Testament taught as law. I mean, in reality, yes, there was some washing that had to be done by the priest, but there, there's no way you could say what they're doing is just a logical extension. They turbocharged... Uh, they tried to to maybe even supercharge the law in in a way that it's like Romans chapter 3 says to us, there's no way by law keeping that men can be justified. So you got two ways to do that. Send the thing to the scrap heap and say law keeping won't save or soup it up. And that's what they do. Man, they're revving that engine up. It reminds me of a story. I'll tell you just really quickly. Pat Wallace isn't here, so I can talk about his Pinto that I bought. 2,000 cc, four-cylinder Pinto. Ken Looney had one, too. There are no, no hot rod, folks. We are at an intersection with a light, and there's a Corvette sitting right next to me. And these two lanes must merge into one, and I know what's in his mind. He looks at me like a bug to step on. I floored that car for everything it had. (laughs) Jeanette says, you're racing, you're racing. And I said, yeah, and the worst of it is, he never even knew. (laughs) He passed me like I was standing still. Folks, I could turbocharge, supercharge, high compression, headers, you name it. I could do all that stuff to that Pinto engine, and it could still walk all over me. That's what they're doing with the law. They're trying to beef up this works system. And it isn't working. There are no dots to connect between what they 
held to be necessary and what the law taught. There are dots between this text and Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, where God speaks of restoring his people after they have fallen. And he said, I will circumcise their hearts. In Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel chapter 36, he speaks about giving men hearts of flesh rather than hearts of stone, hearts on which the law has been written. In other words, the Old Testament said the solution to man's sin is not working harder. It is new hearts. And that's what you see then in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 when that's that's played out. Uh, see. It's still about bread. How many people in their translation, by the way, uh, I heard, I'm trying to remember what I heard, but when it says when they eat their bread with unwashed hands, how many translations just say eat? Well, if you do, shame on them. Because it literally says eat their bread. This whole section's about bread, folks. It's all about bread. The feeding of the 5,000, the disciples not connecting the feeding of the 5,000 to walking on the water. And these poor characters are not looking at the bread, so to speak. If Jesus had been there at the feeding of the 5,000, they would not have been looking at the baskets full of bread. They'd have been looking at those hands. Unwashed, terrible, horrible stuff. They see the hands, not the bread. But the bread is the focus, and it's going to be the focus in the in the Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman that's coming up. It's going to be the focus in the feeding of the 5,000. It's going to be the focus in watch out for the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. This is all about bread, folks. That's what connects the dots. That Those are the dots that have got to be connected if we understand this text. Oh, D, this is no surprise. The disciples still don't get it. Oh, there's a dot that's been consistently playing itself out and will, of course, for some time yet. But notice now what's going to happen. After this event, Jesus is now going to Tyre where he will deal with, in Matthew's words, a Canaanite woman. Now, if you're, if you're steeped in the Old Testament, what would that do to your blood if you were a Jew? Jesus going to a Canaanite woman and he talks about... Hello? Bread! We don't give the bread of the children to dogs. She says, little puppies at least get a few crumbs. It's all about bread. There, too. So, Jesus is going to go to the Gentiles, and I would say, he's going to the Gentiles because of Jewish unbelief. There it is in our text. And Jesus' words here are very much connected with what we're going to see in Acts chapter 10. Kill and eat, Peter. Oh, no. No, no. This is unclean. Peter, eat it. Bacon and all. Eat it, man. And uh, then you get... 2 Corinthians 3, Galatians chapter 2. Remember where Peter is sitting at the Jewish table because he doesn't want to be seen eating like a Gentile? He's denying the truth, which is vital and fundamental. Colossians chapter 2. We'll talk about that again in a minute. So, this declaration by our Lord Jesus, 
declaring all foods clean is monumental. It is more significant in its impact than Matthew 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus is saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He's saying, they've got a wrong interpretation of the law. You know what Jesus does in our text? He says, I'm overturning the law. That's a world of difference. Overturning the law. How and why would he do that? Well, if you had time to connect the dots, you'd start at Genesis uh, 2 with God giving them every green plant, with Genesis 9 where God said you can eat meat but not the blood, with uh, Exodus and the giving of the law where now you can only eat certain meats. The change in the menu, folks, unlike the restaurants we go to, which is just symbolic of the fact they changed the prices, change of the menu means a change of covenant. Jesus is saying, new covenant, new meal. Isn't it interesting that we observe the new covenant by, if we were doing it 1 Corinthians-wise, by a meal? Anyway, okay. So this is, this is critical. Setting aside of the portion of the law because the dispensation has changed. It's the declaration that is essential to a proper understanding of the gospel. If you don't understand what Jesus is saying here, you'll never get the gospel. Because it's not about works. It's fundamental to Gentile evangelism. That's why Jesus can go to the Gentiles next. Because foods don't defile. They're not defilers. The defilement's inside. Just like it is with Jews. This declaration is the foundation to the unity which Jews and Gentiles will have or should have in the church. That's what 1 Corinthians is about and other texts as well. So let's talk about application. If the problem is the heart and it's the defilement of sin that we are born with, then the solution cannot be external washings. It has to be a cleansing from sin that God himself has done. And I'll just turn you to Titus chapter 3 as one of those texts which clearly states that. And I know this is no revelation to you. Verse 3 of Titus chapter 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. That's, this is a Jew speaking. Uh, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, hand washing, pot washing, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ our Savior. The washing that sinners need is the washing of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what cleanses sinners. Not water pots, not dishwashing. I know your wife would love you to do more of that, but not all that stuff. The washing of the blood of Christ. That's what it's about. So the question is, what are the traditions or doctrines that we hold 
perhaps more strongly than Scripture, but which actually contradict the Word of God. I'm really pondering this one because I believe every one of us has certain things we would hold to be doctrine and therefore would cling to to the death that really is more the tradition of men than it is the doctrine of God. So I ask the question, when Jesus says in Matthew 28, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, what are the things Jesus has commanded that we're not doing? And what is our doctrinal basis for not doing it? There's a, I, think, I think all of us have to say, there's a pretty good-sized list of things we're not doing. And the question is, why not? It may be because we've fabricated doctrines that somehow sanctify our disobedience. Legalism versus liberty. Boy, Paul talks about that in Colossians. Uh, David would love this part and does. But it's talking about this, these inhibitions that say, don't touch, don't do this or that. And what Paul says is, it doesn't do, any, it doesn't do anything for sin. That isn't really where it's at. So it relates to our sanctification. Our sanctification is about the heart being cleansed and moving us to actions that proceed from a clean heart. The church and messy believers, new messy believers. You know, we got to really be careful about bringing people in and the first thing we do is give them the, the, the 55 commandments of what we don't do. And frankly, some of that stuff we're going to have to come to terms with. You don't, you don't justify it. You don't validate it. But if God's going to change the heart, we better be careful we're not just out there pressing for outward conformity. Isn't that not right? Okay. Parents with kids. Sure, we can try. I emphasize the word try. We can try to make our kids conform to our standards. And there are standards to which we ought to cause them to conform. Don't misunderstand me. But we as parents have got to come to terms with the fact that the heart is what God is concerned with. And that means that we have to be focusing on their heart. We have to be praying. And by the way, if God is the one who changes hearts, then we can't force people to be saved and we can't force, force people to be holy. That's why Paul talks about the ministry of the word and prayer, or should I say prayer and the ministry of the word. And that's because the prayer part is looking to God to change the heart. But it's the word of God that does that. Okay, I think I'm going to stop there. But this, my friend, this is the first time in the New Testament that this whole issue of where defilement comes from and therefore what holiness looks like but it is central to the whole teaching of the New Testament, to salvation and to sanctification. This is huge, and it's a text that we ought to take seriously. Father, thank you for this text. Thank you for our Lord Jesus who stood firm in terms of the source of sin. Father, our hearts are wretched beyond our imagination. Only you can change them. We pray if there's anyone here who has a defiled heart and they've never trusted in the Lord Jesus, that you would open their heart to acknowledge their sin and to trust in Jesus, whose sacrificial death in their place cleanses. 
from sin for all eternity. And help us who are believers, help us to act on the reality that our hearts are what need to be changed. First of all, help us as parents, help us as those who lead others to Christ to put this into practice in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.